You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Jeff with Homo Money, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. In the personal finance world, we hear it over and over again. Pay yourself first. You pay yourself, usually via automatic savings, before you do any other spending. In other words, you are prioritizing your long-term financial well-being. You're looking out for the future you, as well as the present you. But in many ways, we don't tell people exactly how to do this. Do we start with debt? Or is it the 401k balance? Do we need a 401k? Maybe we should open a taxable brokerage account. The choices are vast, and for many, these choices can be confusing. Well, given that the holiday season is upon us, we're going to have a themed pay-yourself-first conversation. Today, we talk to Jeff Underwood of Homo Money about the top seven stacking stuffers of savings. We also will delve into hitting rock bottom during the Great Recession of 2008 and hear about a few of the whopping mistakes Jeff made early on. Will any of them sound familiar to you? Jeff Underwood had a house and a condo in San Diego, but then he lost it all in the market crash in 2008. At that point, he cashed in his 401k and was $10,000 in credit card debt. To make matters worse, it was the Great Recession and he was barely making $10,000 a year working as a freelance video producer. But he got a stable government job and bounced back. Two investment properties and multiple income streams later, he is on track to hit $1 million in net worth by 2025. He is also the creator of the award-winning blog, Homo Money. Jeff Underwood, welcome to Earn and Invest. Let's go back to 2008. What the heck happened? Oh, man. So much stuff happened. I was honorably discharged from my six years of Navy service at the end of 2007. And so the beginning of 2008 was what I thought was going to be my new beginning of like this new chapter. I am now a freelancer or I'll find some other job that's going to be incredible. And it was like interviewing for jobs in 2008, just because you're a military vet companies that I thought were going to like take care of their veterans and, you know, want to give a job to somebody who was responsible with military service. I think a lot of them just had their hands tied that there weren't a lot of opportunities. So professionally, I was forced to just take my freelance video production business that I was doing before I got out of the military. I had to take that as like, well, I guess this will be my plan A. I'll just make this my my full-time job in the meantime. 
And uh, that was difficult because going around to business networking groups and trying to promote my services, it was still pretty new. The idea of video for like marketing a business, a small business, and a lot of small businesses didn't have a lot of money to uh, pay for marketing in the first place. So I, I struggled there. And then I didn't really know how I was going to pay for you know, my expenses from month to month. I was just trying to keep my head above water. The little bit that I had put away into my 401k while I was in the Navy, they call it TSP. That little bit that I had, I actually did early withdrawals. I just paid the piper on those early withdrawal fees. After I had withdrawn all the money from my 401k just to survive, then I was like, well, now I need more money to live off of. I started doing credit card advances. I would do $1,000 here, $1,000 there, and then pay higher interest rates on that cash that I was pulling out to pay expenses. And then also to make matters worse, you know, we had the real estate crash. So I had a house and a condo that I bought on speculation. And so those were both upside down. And I was willing to move out of the one of the properties that I was in at the time just to get renters in there, try to make ends meet. You know, the one month that I, I had a vacancy, I didn't have anything to cover that vacancy in the property. So that's when my house of cards fell and I defaulted on both the loans. And at that point, it was almost like that was a blessing in disguise because then I moved back into one of my properties and then there's, it was a long process to get the whole, it ended up being a short sale, not a foreclosure, luckily, but that's a lot of paperwork, a lot of back and forth with the banks. And so for almost a year, I was able to live without having to make mortgage payments. So that was kind of like my other way that I did survive for an extra year, making so little money. And so the big takeaway for that is, you know, being so rock bottom, just barely scraping by. I I had a gym membership and I'll tell you, frankly, there was times when I thought, you know, do I really need to worry about paying rent someplace? I could probably shower at my gym. I could probably sleep in my car. And it was looking back on it. It's like, I was like rationalizing becoming homeless. That almost seemed like it was the lesser of evils that that was kind of like, Oh yeah, that makes more sense than just trying to do all this other stuff I'm doing to try to scrape together money to survive. So yeah, it was a it was a very traumatic time in my life and so when I finally did get my feet firmly planted with a stable government job and I could start maxing out retirement accounts, I was like I am not going to let inflation creep kind of get the best of me. It wasn't even an option because I had suffered so much just trying to survive prior to that that I was going to I was going to save and invest everything I could, keep my overhead as low as possible because that trauma was just kind of like my saving muscle was like, wow, I'm so tight. I was just like, I'm going to make sure whatever I do, I don't get myself in that position again. And that's that's what I I just made a post on Instagram this morning. I said, that's part of my story of what made me a born again frugal. Born again frugal. I like that. <laughs> We're going to talk about that saving muscle in a moment. But before we get there, did the Navy prepare you for any of this? Did they teach you about money management? Obviously, nothing could have prepared you for the recession of 2008, but had the Navy given you any financial teaching? Honestly, no. I think that it could just be that there's just so much information out there that it gets overly complicated, that it might be similar to a lot of workplaces where the best education you can get is hopefully one of your coworkers is talking about these things. And so then just kind of through word of mouth, you might pick up some things. 
but there was no organized financial classes or webinars or anything. I think that's just now starting to become more mainstream. Let's talk about that rock bottom moment. I mean, you were talking about being homeless. You had cashed out your 401k and you were taking the penalties. I mean, these are all the things that us personal finance geeks get really worried about, right? This makes us very anxious. But for anyone who's in that moment right now, how did you turn it around? Like, so obviously it was very traumatic. You were at the bottom, but where did the resources come? How did you actually learn how to manage your money at that point so that you could start climbing back out? The beginning of my education was the, I think it was a 2013 PBS documentary, The Retirement Gamble. I've always been interested in documentaries as somebody who I continued my freelance video production business, even after I got my government job, my W-2 job. And so I always like seeing other people's documentary work. And so I think it was just out of an interest in just learning something new. I, somebody might've recommended it to me. So I checked it out and that like, that lit this fire in me that I have always been a little bit entrepreneurial, but in terms of money management and financial planning, I never felt like I had any kind of handle on that. I mean, I needed to hire other people to do that. And so when I saw that documentary, it's like 45 minutes long, that was just like, okay, I've got this. Like there's people who there's, there are common threads that the successful people are doing, and I don't need to abdicate my power to somebody else and pay them an active management fee. I don't need to hire somebody for commission-based financial planning. Like I can just do this the way that all these other people have been successful. And having a reputable source like PBS reporting on this was like, I felt like I had just gotten a master's degree in finance in just the span of 45 minutes. And that was that was the beginning for me. I was going to ask you what about the retirement gamble really spoke to you. But as I'm listening to you talk about this, it sounds like self-empowerment was what you took from that. Obviously, there were some very specifics, right, about how you build a business, those kind of things. But it sounds to me self-empowerment was a big part of that turnaround. Yeah, self-empowerment is is huge for me. And that's something that I always try to infuse into other people's psyche too with anything that I'm posting or if I'm talking to somebody offline that we do have the power. We have a lot more power than I think we give ourselves credit for. and. The other thing that came to mind for me with that documentary is that it was so transparent. I've never seen anything up to that point where they introduce a subject who's about to interview, be interviewed, give sound bites. And then in the the lower third of the screen, it would say the person's name, what's their annual salary, how much do they have saved for retirement? And that happens in the fire community, but in everyday life, like people don't talk about money in that way. And so to hear people's experience of their challenges, trying to save for retirement, while at the same time, you had the exact snapshot of this is how much they make, and this is how much they've been able to save. It really gave this inside look behind the scenes that I was riveted on the edge of my seat because this is like normally taboo subject for anybody to share about their finances. It's seen as maybe braggy if you talk about finances. Because of that social norm, I think it just forces a lot of people to just be on their own and try to try to figure things out because nobody else wants to be seen as that schmoozy, gross person who's talking money too much. 
So what I love about this conversation is clearly you got to rock bottom and you started working out that saving muscle. You, in essence, as we were talking about in the introduction, were learning how to pay yourself first. But the conversation we don't often have is we don't get exactly to how do we do this. There are lots of ways to save, lots of places to put your money It is the holidays, and last year you did a wonderful holiday-themed blog post called The Top 7 Stocking Stuffers of Your Savings. I love this idea because we're talking about the holidays, but we're actually talking about paying yourself first. But you get into some of the how we should start saving, and I'm sure especially as you were making that journey and learning how to pay yourself first – You had to decide what that actually looked like. So let's look at these top seven stocking stuffers on how to pay yourself first. Number one is the 401k match. So you suggest that if you have a little extra money, the number one place you should be looking for is to put enough money into your 401k at least to reach the match. Talk about why it's important you do that first. The reason why is because you're getting 100% return on your money. Even if you pick the most conservative investment that is barely keeping up with inflation historically, if you are getting the 401k match and let's say it's $5,000 a year, well, your employer just matched it $5,000. So you just doubled your money before the investing part even started. And that is the best return that you can get in year one of any, any place that you put your money. And it's incredibly powerful, right? Because not only do you get that 100% return, you also don't pay taxes immediately on that money that goes into your 401k, and then it grows tax deferred. So it is true. At some point, you're going to have to pay the Pied Piper. If you live to a nice old age, eventually you're going to have to withdraw that money at whatever your tax rate is at that time. But you're really deferring taxes so that it can grow. That's huge. That's a huge return. You say after you reach the 401k match, the next step is the Roth IRA. Why not fill out the 401k totally? Why move to the Roth IRA so quickly? The Roth IRA has minimum or a maximum contribution limit. And so it was $6,000 for the longest time. It just got bumped up a little bit. I like to to use $6,000 for somebody under 50 years old because it's nice, even numbers. $6,000 a year is $500 a month. And the reason why I like the Roth IRA versus the traditional IRA is because I'm a big fan of just tax the seed versus taxing the harvest. I would rather just have to pay my taxes up front on that little bit of the seed that goes into the Roth IRA versus having all this compound interest and this compound growth over 10, 20, 30 years. And now I've got way more that I would be paying taxes on at whatever my tax rate is at that time, because I'm all about delayed gratification. And so just a little bit of pain paying the taxes up front on the seed, I think far outweighs the pain of having to pay a lot more money on the harvest later on. And then the reason why I then also go to the Roth IRA next is because like I said, the maximum contribution is around $6,000. So that is not a whole lot to move the needle long-term to get to whatever your, your FI number is. Like if you're trying to get to 1.5 million, it's going to take a lot of years to get to that. So the thing is you're taking advantage of the tax benefits. And so then you essentially want to have time on your side. And so my thing is the Roth IRA, you can't just if let's say you start making more money in 2023, 
Well, you can't go back in time and say, well, now I want to actually fully fund 2020, 2021, 2022. Now I have the money to put $6,000 into every one of those years. I didn't have it before. The IRS is going to be like, nope, it only starts when you have the money. So that's why it's like, all right, it's such a great benefit to do the Roth IRA. Start it as soon as you can and let time be on your side and then move on to any extra overflow into those other stockings. So this is a great example of tax deferral diversification, which some people don't really think about. But when you put the match into the 401k, you're basically deferring all taxes to the future. On the other hand, when you then put money in the Roth, you're paying the original taxes right away, but then never paying taxes again. This is really a way of diversifying your tax hit so that in the future, you protect yourself more. It's a great example of it. We are talking the top seven stocking stuffers of Jeff's savings. Number one was the 401k match. Number two was the Roth IRA. Number three is something we love to talk about, the health savings account. Why is the health savings account so powerful? The health savings account is a triple tax savings. So your money is going in tax-free. It's coming out tax-free when you use it for any type of health expense and it's growing tax-free. And then when you hit age 57, then you can also use that money for other expenses that aren't health-related. But the caveat there is that then it's it's more like a traditional IRA. So you will have some taxes taken out at that point based on your, your, your tax uh, bracket at that point after 57 years old. And so for me, I love the HSA because not just the triple tax benefit, but I love it because you know, you're able to invest that money. It rolls over every year. A lot of people get it mixed up with the flexible spending account and flexible spending accounts. Let's say you've allocated $2,000 a year into a flexible spending account. If you don't have qualified purchases within that year, and let's say you only spent $1,000, then you lose that extra thousand and none of that extra rolls over to the following year. So I think a lot of people will avoid HSAs because they think that it's the same thing as a flexible spending account. And so not only does anything extra that you didn't spend get rolled over year after year, but you can also choose investments to put them into. And so I've set mine to just do an auto sweep and to automatically purchase VTSAX, which is very popular with the FIRE community. And so I set up that auto sweep. When my HSA gets above $500 in it, it'll just automatically pull in that excess, invest it into however many shares of VTSAX that it can. And then I set it and forget it once and it's done. In addition to just being a, a, a very savvy retirement vehicle and savings and investing vehicle, I really like the HSA because I think that it also creates a paradigm shift where instead of me seeing a some type of unexpected expense, like right now, I told you before we started this interview, I have a partially torn Achilles tendon. So far, that's required me to get an MRI, which I had an option of paying insurance rate, which was more, 550, or I could pay out-of-pocket rate for 400. So I did the out-of-pocket rate. I also am going to have to start doing some physical therapy. And normally that would just be like such a bummer of having to pay out of pocket for all this stuff that I hadn't planned for, dip into the emergency fund. I love that I don't even have to dip into my emergency fund because I have a health savings account. 
I have money that's already allocated for it. So I don't feel like I'm going to just try to limp around and just try to make do. And maybe this injury is going to get worse. Like I'm going to actually take care of my body better because I have money that's already allocated to do just that. I know that there's a lot of people who they want to try to maximize and optimize their HSA by saying, well, I'll actually pay out of pocket with the credit card and then save those receipts in a, in a Google drive folder or something. And then when I get to retirement, then I'll reimburse myself from my HSA. So the HSA can grow unencumbered as, as long as possible. I have a slightly different philosophy on that. My thought is if I'm trying to optimize my HSA so much that I draw from it as little as possible, I think I'm going to be less likely to actually use it when I need it like right now. And so I would rather actually dip into that HSA, actually use the money and pull from that HSA when I need it, because I think that's going to create better habits for me to take care of my health. So when I get to retirement, hopefully I'll be less banged up and in better shape to enjoy my golden years with more what's what's the word like i'll have a little bit more longevity and i'll have more vitality to go on hikes and be active you know i won't get to the finish line and then i'm just like barely holding my body together interestingly enough i've never heard someone say this but in a sense your hsa complements your emergency fund right because you know at least if you have a health related problem you can use those hsa funds for emergency medical expenses. I guess the only downside for that would be is if you have it in long-term investments like VTSAX, you may have your health emergency at a point when the market is down. So you might take a loss or at least have to liquidate it at a point that's not the best, but there's ways to have a certain amount of cash in your HSA, as well as have a diversification of different funds there too. So my HSA, well, any HSA is going to be tied to a high deductible health plan. And my, my high deductible health plan, it says that after I have $1,500 deductible met, then it kicks in and it covers 95% of my expenses. So to your point, let's say I had something catastrophic that happened and I needed to pull a lot of money in. I know that I would only have to pull $1,500 out of my investments. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm fine if I have to pay some kind of withdrawal fees for that $1,500. You know, that's that's a lot. That's not that bad of a scenario compared to the alternative of, you know, having medical bills bankrupt somebody. Now, I did notice that one of your top seven stocking stuffers is not the emergency fund. Was that done on purpose or is that just a given? That's a good point. Yeah. I think because I had more of a focus on saving and investing, I wasn't, yeah, that wasn't even on my radar. And so that's a, that's a very good point. That should be like step 0.5 before step one. <laughs> so step 0.5, your emergency fund. Step one, your 401k. Step two, your Roth IRA. Step three, your health savings account. Step four, you say max out your 401k. We're going to pass that for the moment and go to step five, your vacation fund. Now this I can get into. Here's the first part where you really sound like you're paying yourself first. You know, in a sense, it's okay to spend your money, even your savings to do something you enjoy. And maybe it's really good that you put this in here because people forget that they should be enjoying their money today too. Yeah. And you know, the, the reason why I put that in there is not to say I'm trying to create this perfect system that everyone should follow. I just wanted to share transparently from the spirit of, well, this is how I'm doing it. Feel free to structure it. However, you have your priorities in your life. And so for me, when I get to 
stocking number five or 5.5, I want to make sure that I have $200 out of every paycheck every two weeks is going into my vacation fund. And so that's just set up through my bank where they will automatically transfer money from my main checking account into this sub checking account that is called the vacay fund. And so when I look at a snapshot of all my different accounts of my credit union, I can see over time that vacation fund is growing. And it's nice that the same way that I've heard it said that when you plan a vacation, you don't just get the benefit of going on the vacation, but you also get the psychological benefit of looking forward to the vacation and then those great memories after the vacation. I feel like having a vacation fund for me is the same equivalent of having a trip planned because I see that money growing and I start getting excited about what that money could be used for. Number six is Acorns. Tell us what Acorns is. Acorns is a robo-advisor and it is great for a lot of young people. They want a user interface that is user-friendly, that's app-based. Acorns is a way to, it started as roundups to my knowledge, where you go, you, you connect it to your credit cards, your debit cards. And let's say you go and you buy a coffee, you go to Target. If you spent, you know, five fifty, it's going to round up to the nearest dollar and it's going to put that extra 50 cents into your Acorns account. After you've accumulated, I think it's around $5, then Acorns will take that $5 and then it will move it into an investment allocation of your choice. And so they've got, I think, around five different five different classifications that you can pick from conservative to aggressive. It's a way for someone to just kind of set it and forget it. And the idea of found money where we can spend money all day from day to day, from month to month and think, well, I don't have any extra money to invest. And so what's powerful about Acorns is that because it's just rounding up to the nearest dollar, it is finding that money for you without you having to lift a finger and do anything. And then I think when you click on the tab of Acorns, where it kind of looks into your future projections of what is this going to grow to in a year, in 10 years, in 20 years, it, for me, at least it got me excited thinking, oh, well, this could actually grow even faster if I add an extra $5 a day to my roundups. And like right now I'm at an extra $10 a day to my roundups. And so it's just like one extra way that you can start getting excited about, you know, maybe this could be a supplement to your emergency fund. I have a friend who never had an emergency fund, never had anything saved. And his Acorns account bailed him out quite a few times for like when he had a tire blowout on his car, but also when he wanted to go on a cruise and he was like, well, I don't have the money, but I've got it in my Acorns. And so it's a nice way to pay yourself first where you get over that psychological hurdle that a lot of times it feels like it's a very serious thing. It's a very adulting thing. I think it, it brings, it might bring up memories for some people of like, okay, to pay myself first, I need to put on a button down shirt, go into a bank, talk to a representative at the bank and be very responsible, fill out all this paperwork. And so Acorns is just like, oh, you just do it from your app. It just kind of ties into your spending that you're already doing. And then before you know it, like you have all this found money that you don't even know where it came from because you don't feel that hit to your wallet. And of course, the last of your pay it yourself, top seven stocking stuffers, number seven, real estate down payment. 
This is another form of diversification. You've mentioned before that real estate has played a role in your building wealth. Talk to me about the importance of your average person getting into real estate. I've seen quotes before that 90% of millionaires do so with real estate, and that is rental property real estate. Because Robert Kiyosaki is famously quoted saying that your primary residence is your biggest liability. It's not your biggest asset. And so I think you have to be very careful and very strategic about what kinds of real estate you're buying. For me, I think that the ideal investment is something where it can work as both a primary residence and an investment property. And so that could be like a multifamily property where you have multiple units and uh, you could buy like a twoplex, a threeplex, a fourplex. You live in one of the units, then the other units, they're rental units. So essentially that pays down your responsibility of how much you have to pay for your mortgage. But the other benefit is when it's your primary residence, you have better interest rates and you have less money down than if it was a, an investment property. I think the average for primary residence is around eight to 10% down payment. But then for an investment property, you usually have to come up with 20 to 25% down and less favorable mortgage rates too. There's a lot of benefits to kind of combining your primary residence with an investment property. And I also like to think of whichever home I'm, in, I'm living in right now, like my downtown condo in San Diego, it's a modest one bedroom in size, but I have already had to rent this to travel nurses as a medium term rental. And when I did that, I was amazed to see how popular it was. And so I feel confident that my primary residence is going to be a good investment property when I move on to my next place. So anytime I'm buying a, a piece of real estate, I always run the numbers. I always see, okay, if I put 20, if I were to put 20% down, would this at least break even? And then I run the numbers with long-term rents, with medium-term rents on Furnished Finder, and then with short-term rentals on Airbnb. And for me, the long-term rents are usually the most conservative numbers. So I like to make sure that those numbers will pencil out first. And then I'll compare the other ones too, which the other ones like short-term rental and medium-term rental, that's going to be my first course of action. But I like knowing that I have long-term rental as like a backup plan. We are talking to Jeff Underwood. He is the writer behind the award-winning Homo Money blog. And we are talking about paying yourself first. But of course, since it's the holiday, our holiday theme is the top seven stocking stuffers of Jeff's savings. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about how we make mistakes when trying to pay ourselves first. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. 
It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Hey, everybody. This is Doc G, and I am hanging out in San Miguel de Allende this week. I'm giving a talk on my book, Taking Stock. It's really a beautiful place, and I just wanted to remind everyone not only to check out the book, Taking Stock, but also if you have an event, I would love to come speak about the role money plays in our lives and what being a hospice doctor has taught me about money and life. If you want more information about the book, just go to earnandinvest.com slash book. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash book. Now let's get back to the show. We are talking to Jeff Underwood, who went from $10,000 in debt to a hope of having a million-dollar net worth in 2025. He is also the creator of the award-winning Homo Money blog. Jeff, we just spent a bunch of time talking about how to pay yourself first. You told us your top seven stocking stuffers of your savings. Now I want to go to this idea of how we make mistakes when we're trying to do this. You've written many, many blog posts about this idea of how you do it wrong. And so there were three things you specifically did wrong I wanted to talk about. First and foremost, you talk about delaying retirement contributions and how that eventually caused you problems. Not just delaying, but you actually cashed out your 401k. Talk about how people make mistakes when they don't pay enough attention to retirement contributions. Yeah, I think if someone doesn't have an emergency fund, then they are going to be susceptible to that same mistake I made where I had to cash out my retirement accounts and pay those penalties. And if you look at any kind of projections of, let's say your goal is to get to a million dollars by age 65, if you start at age 20, that's going to be around, I don't know the numbers offhand, it's like maybe a couple hundred dollars you have to save every month. But then every decade that passes, it's almost like the amount you have to save every month grows exponentially. Time is on your side when you start early. And so if you do have to draw down from your retirement accounts, not only are you paying all those fees, but you're also, you're restarting the clock. And when you restart the clock, you're not going to be paying $200 a month to get to a million at age 65. Well, now the clock has restarted where that exponential growth of how much extra you have to put in. Now that's working against you. Now you have to put in even more every month to get to a million. 
What you're really talking about here is the power of compounding, but it's also interesting because you made a great point, right? This idea of people start using their retirement savings as their emergency fund because they didn't save an appropriate emergency fund, which is, as we said, maybe step 0.5 of your top seven (laughs) stocking stuffers. It's important to have that emergency fund so that you don't have to cash into those retirement funds and pay the huge penalties. Number two of your things not to do was buy real estate based on speculation. Tell, Tell me about what happened. Did you make some bad investments? I definitely did. It was a bad time. I mean, in 2006, 2007, they had uh, what I've heard called liar loans, where you just have stated income. And that's what the my realtor told me was, oh, yeah, don't worry about that. You know, just say that you make this much or just get a family member to transfer the money into your account just so that then you have enough in there to show that you have a nice cushion. And then you can always transfer it back after we close escrow. It's just like, it was seemed really weird all the things that we were doing, but as somebody who was a new investor to real estate, I just figured, well, that's just what that's what the market does. That's the industry. I didn't have enough historical knowledge to say this is different and this seems like it could be a problem. And so, you know, hindsight's 2020. I know a lot of people who have been real estate investors for decades that got burned in 2008 too. And so my big mistake was I just went off of speculation that, well, things are going up so much and things have gone up so much. The the old adage, past performance does not indicate future performance. So I just assumed future performance is going to keep matching the past performance of how much things have gone up. So that was the speculation that I just assumed it would keep going up. The other thing that I assumed or the other mistake that I made was a sense of ego got the best of me because my first property that I bought in 2003 before the crash, before losing everything was a two bedroom, one bath condo. It was around 240,000. And I remember I got that because the VA loan at the time had a limit of around 240,000. So with zero down, I was able to get my foot in the door with a piece of property and it was just barely low enough for me to afford it. And then that property went up $100,000 within a couple of years. And I thought, wow, real estate's great. You can't lose. I'm just I'm just going to take some big risks and then go in and get something else because I've got 100000 in equity. I'll take out a $100,000 home equity loan and I'll put that toward the down payment of another property. You know, is that house of cards thing? You know, when one domino falls, then they're all going to fall because I'm borrowing against myself. I'm getting over leveraged, as they say. And so then my second property was a house that was half a million. And that was the 20% down payment was borrowing against that first property with the speculation that that 100,000 equity was going to stay 100,000 equity, that it wasn't going to go down in value. The way that ego played into that was, when I got back from a deployment, I I had my first condo rented out while I was gone. And I got back from a military deployment and I thought, man, I I'm I would be such a loser to just like move back into the same condo. You know, I've got all this equity. I really want to feel a sense of success. And for me, success is being a dual homeowner. Mm-hmm. If I own two properties, man, like that's going to be so badass. People will say like, oh, Jeff is definitely successful now because he's got two properties and he's like still in his twenties. 
So it was like, it felt like moving back into my first condo was almost like I had kind of shed that skin that was too small for me. And so I just couldn't fit back into it anymore. And I just wanted to really, I guess it was lifestyle inflation. I was like, I felt that sense of like, well, I just want to really spread my wings and I just want to have all this extra space now. And so that was, I think, playing into it also. So all the things that that we're told in the fire community of keep your expenses low, don't be a victim of lifestyle creep or lifestyle inflation. I was doing all of that because there was so much speculation in the market. Real estate was going up so much so quickly. And I don't think that anybody expected it to end. That's how it got the best of me. And that was also making that mistake was it, it started that muscle of like, all right, don't do that again. Take calculated risks. Don't over leverage yourself. Make sure that you don't have that gut feeling that something might go wrong because now I listen to that gut feeling a lot more than I did in the past. I love this conversation because it really brings out some of the interesting differences between speculation and investment. One is ego, right? So you think you know better than everyone else. So you're going to buy an asset that appreciates and therefore you're going to make money on that. And that often is wrong because markets tend to be efficient and sometimes people know things you don't know. Two, over leverage, which we saw over and over again with real estate, especially in 2008, if you're over leveraged you eventually pay the price for it. And last but not least, focusing on appreciation versus cash flow, which is a mistake a lot of people make in real estate. But the problem is appreciation is unknowable. The cash flow is a lot more easy to know and to plan for. Definitely important and big points, not just for real estate, but I think for the difference between investment and speculation in general. And a third costly mistake you made, maybe the exact opposite, where real estate, you thought you knew everything, but when it came to investments, you hired a commission-based financial advisor. Tell me about making that mistake and how much it cost you. So that came about because I was in a business networking group and I was trying to promote my freelance video production company. And the way that business networking groups work is there's only one person from each trade allowed into the group. And so because I was the only video producer, we're trying to give each other tips to each other, meaning like business referrals, either for our friends and family or for ourselves. And there was someone who was a financial planner in the group. And I figured, well, you know, I I need to have my money managed anyway. Yeah, I'm happy to give him a referral because then a lot of times it comes back around to you. You give some business to somebody else and then they give that business back to you. So maybe I'll I'll make it up by, uh, you know, having some video production that he hires me for, or he refers me for. It was after I saw the retirement gamble that we just talked about earlier, that that 2013 documentary opened my eyes to a lot of things. And it gave me a lot of questions that I wanted to talk openly with him about. And I said, you know, they mentioned the idea of a fiduciary, you know, are, are you a fiduciary? And every question that I asked, it seemed like there was kind of this roundabout question, roundabout answer. He was kind of evading the answer. And I said, I think this documentary, I think that you would really like it. It's in your industry. I think they talk about a lot of good things that we could kind of talk more intelligently about my investments. And he poo-pooed the whole thing and said, oh, I'm sure that you can find something negative out there about your industry and about anybody's industry. If you just YouTube or Google any topic, And at the time I didn't really, I didn't challenge him on that, but 
I kind of, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, this is PBS. They put out this documentary. They are very reliable. They're very unbiased. Why is he pushing back against this so much? And so there's certain products that he was offering, like permanent life insurance as an investment that I already, my spidey sense already went up and I was like, no, that's okay. Let's not do that. Let's just do term insurance. And so I thought that I was coming out unscathed because I didn't go for, you know, the big thing he was trying to sell me on, but I did have investments with him. And so after seeing the retirement gamble, I realized, oh, my investments are actively managed. I'm in actively managed mutual funds, which are charging a management fee that's eroding my gains long-term. And then I might also be paying him a management fee. And it's such convoluted fine print where you can't really get an exact answer that it is not something that you can really figure out exactly what it is. And even when I asked him for it, he had to, you know, I guess, go back to his office and to get something in writing. And I think it was just like hordes of pages long. And then I had to log into a portal to even view it and then try to decipher it and decode it myself. There was a lot of steps in the process where they want to keep you ignorant and not knowing the answer. And they, these types of commission-based advisors, I believe they only make money if you are not educated. And so they want to keep you in the dark. And so after getting this, just this feeling that I don't think he really cares about educating me. And I don't think he really wants to have an honest conversation about these things that were in a legit documentary. I decided I'm just going to cut my losses. I've only got about $10,000 invested in the market with him. I'm just going to take it all out. I'm going to cash it out. I'm going to pay the surrender fees because I think it was between like 10 and 20% when it was all said and done. Yep. Yep. But to me, I was like, that is better to do that now and get out while the getting's good versus like, what if I had waited a decade? And then now it's like hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm going to probably feel a lot more like I am locked in and I can't pull out at that point. So I'm grateful that I saw that documentary as early as I did. And my surrender fees were just a couple thousand instead of being, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Jeff, it begs the question, should most people be managing their own money? I mean, do we need financial advisors? I'm a big fan of the idea of a fee-based financial advisor, but my personal feeling is that we really don't need to start spending a lot of money on all that just to get going. I think that because the whole thing of inertia is such a powerful force, you know, once we develop some positive habits, we have inertia working for us in a good way. But if we have never taken action our whole lives, we have inertia working against us where it's that much harder to get going. And so I think if, if someone is, if they think in their mind, they need to pay thousands of dollars to a fee-based financial advisor just to get started. And maybe they haven't even maxed out any of those first few stockings that we talked about. I think that's going to be a deterrent that's going to keep them from moving forward. And my personal philosophy is just get started, just get going. And then you can course correct along the way. And I think that because it takes so long to get to that first hundred thousand and then things start kind of compounding and then that exponential growth starts setting in. 
my audience is more beginners and I like to encourage people to just, just get going, just get started, just pick the tried and true things that the entire financial independence community is doing like VTSAX and VTI. And, you know, as long as it's a low cost index fund that is just tracking the whole market, you'll be good. And then you can always rebalance. You can always shift your allocation later, but just get that started now and let time start working on your side. And so to your question, yes, I do think that people can do this themselves just to get going because it's in my mind, you don't really need to worry too much about all the nitty gritty and get tied up in the weeds until you get closer to like having a million dollars net worth. And that's where that advice paying a few thousand dollars to a fee-based advisor, that's where you can really get your money's worth on tax strategies and how are you going to allocate? What's your next investment going to be? All those things. I think you have a lot more skin in the game where you can really reap the benefits of paying for that advice. Jeff, let's return this conversation to the beginning. You're talking about you just need to get started. A lot of people here are kind of where you were in that rock bottom place and they're trying to figure out what comes first. What do you think is like the best first step? Especially if you've just had this epiphany, you're like, I need to start paying myself first. Is there something simple they can start with that first step to get them going? Hmm. That's a great question. I would say to look at your savings rate, because if if you were to look at the Mr. Money Mustache blog post of the shockingly simple math of early retirement, that can be a big motivator for a lot of people to see how if you have an aggressive savings rate, like 80%, how you can retire so quickly versus if you just peel that bandaid off very slowly and you do like a 10% savings rate or a 15% savings rate. Yes, you can hit your goal. You can hit early retirement, but it's going to take you a lot longer. And I think that might be a good first step to get that money mindset in place to then realize, okay, what is my timeline of when I actually want to retire? And then how many years would it take at my current savings rate? Then after you kind of have a little bit of a ballpark number of what that goal would be for your lifestyle, then you can start looking at, you know, the big three housing, auto food. And, you know, there's some people like, uh, in the, uh, Get Smart with Money documentary on Netflix. There's some people who, even though it's common knowledge that housing is your most expensive expense, that is the last thing that people are willing to part with and to downsize. And so maybe if you look at your food spending, maybe you know your, your lattes, your avocado toast, I know that that has gotten a bad rap, but if you look at just all of those little things that are just drops in the bucket, well, all those drops in the bucket will add up to, you know, a bucket full of water by the end of the month. Maybe there's certain things that you're actually not deriving a lot of joy from, but you're just spending on autopilot. I think after you have a general idea of how much would you like to save every month, what would your goal be? I think then it kind of creates a little bit more of a game. And if you can gamify it by then you, after you have that goal, then you can look at your spending. I plug my credit cards and my debit cards into mint.com because it's a free app to track all my spending. Then I can look at that and I can see, well, where is that money going? What are the categories, the slices of the pie, where the most money is going? Then I can start drilling down and I, I can start seeing, okay, well, do I really need this membership? Am I really using this streaming service? 
I can start going line item by line item and then realizing, oh, I, I do have found money if I just have a little bit more financial hygiene to go through this every so often and see, are there things that I'm actually not really using or enjoying? And I think that kind of starts flexing that muscle of having financial hygiene where then after you see, okay, I've gotten as far as I can by saving on these little things, I think then it can help somebody feel more prepared to be like, all right, you know what? This is a lot that we're paying in our rent or in our mortgage. I think that maybe it's time that we downsize to something smaller, or I think that it's time that we bring in a roommate, or maybe we rent out the the garage or the basement to a travel nurse. That thing that maybe was so uncomfortable and such a a dramatic shift to their lifestyle, their, their comfort levels, that I think maybe if you're not ready to do that right away, do those little things first, because then you're going to start the inertia going in a positive direction. And then you'll feel more equipped to be like, okay, I've tried that as long as I could. I'm not moving the needle as much as I'd like. I'm ready to make a bigger step. And that's exactly what happened in that Netflix documentary when Mr. Money Mustache was consulting with a family in uh, Colorado. Well, Jeff Underwood, I wanted to thank you for coming on Earn and Invest. We often talk about paying yourself first, but today we specifically talked about how you do that and what are some of the mistakes you can make. I want to end this episode the way we end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and where people can contact you if they want to learn more. First and foremost, what is coming up next for Jeff Underwood? Well, Jeff Underwood is about to finish his third master's degree because he is a masochist and uh, because he has GI Bill benefits that are going to expire at the end of this year. So this third master's degree has allowed him to not just get education, but to get a housing allowance through the VA. My plan for 2023 is to work less, to vacation more, and to kind of take a page out of your book, Taking Stock, and just to really infuse more balance and to start having more fun, to start going on more trips, to start putting less pressure on myself, to make a blog post every single month. But you know, just to post things when I feel inspired, I do try to stay more on top of making at least a post every day on Instagram though. So that's a good way to get in touch with me, to follow me, to direct message me. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm still saving up a down payment for my next piece of real estate, but I feel really fortunate that I'm at a place in my life right now where I'm not in a rush to get that next piece of property. In fact, I, I, I like where I live and I have a good friend who's in escrow right now for a condo in the building next door. And so I'm kind of thinking like, I don't know that I really want to change things up anytime soon, however long it takes until I save up enough money to buy my next investment property with my VA loan. I think maybe that will be years down the road. I don't know, but it's a nice place to be to just have this blank canvas and to not feel like I need to prove anything or I have to hit a certain milestone because I'm at coast fire. I feel confident I'm going to hit my goals and I can just maybe start letting my foot off the gas pedal a little bit. That's where I'm at right now. And so the future is unknown and we'll see what happens. And what is your Instagram handle? My Instagram handle is homo underscore money. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Jeff Underwood. That's a wrap.
Awesome. So I leave things on so we keep it running for the after show. One thing I didn't talk to you about again is your platform name, Homo Money. Let's talk about the LGBTQ community. Do you feel like they're represented in the personal finance world today? No, I don't think that there's a lot of representation. And I've told friends, frankly, I don't know if the LGBT community is going to get on board and join the party. You know, even though I'm an LGBT brand, I feel like I am like a unique voice in the fire community. And my like sassy take on things is attracting other people who are, I'm kind of preaching to the choir a little bit, people who are already predisposed to this information. But uh, I think because it's not really something that is a priority for my community right now, I think it might be the kind of thing that when I achieve mainstream success with the straight community, with the mainstream community, I think maybe at that point it might get on people's radar in the LGBT community. But it's really something that there's such a huge culture shift that I think needs to happen. And so hopefully with me and some of the other LGBT voices out there, you know, together we can start creating a little bit more of a sea change. But yeah, I'm, Go ahead. I, I, I know that it's going to be something that would need to happen organically and then just kind of, you know, take time because the fire community has been around for a little over 10 years. And it probably seems to a newcomer like, oh, well, this just happened overnight. But I'm sure that you've seen that it's taken some time also. Do you think the financial issues are different for the LGBT community than, for instance, the fire community per se? Yeah. Um, so for like the trans community, they definitely are up against the most, you know, possible discrimination and then being kicked out of the house and, you know, possibly being homeless, possibly having to resort to being a sex worker. Yes, like they definitely have a ton of challenges. Um, I would say for like the cis, white, male, gay population like myself, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have not as many hurdles to overcome, but there is still the possibility of LGBT discrimination. So we are kind of the pendulum is starting to swing backwards where, you know, it is going to possibly be something where we can be discriminated against and lose our job because of our sexuality. So, you know, knock on wood, that's not something that comes to fruition, but I think having that paranoia in the back of your mind, I could lose my job because people don't like me. I think that might make somebody maybe play it safe or not go up for that promotion, not want to make waves. And I think that it, it kind of happens in subtle ways. It can impact people uh, professionally. And then Overall, I think that the uh, the LGBT community, at least for gay men, I think that we tend to be very live in the moment, just like, you know, party, there's no guarantees for tomorrow, which is a great philosophy. Like it fits into your book, Taking Stock. Um, mm -hmm. However, I think that gets taken a little bit too far where they're not actually planning anything for the future. Yeah. There is, and the, you know, there's, there's a lot of trauma left over from HIV mm -hmm. uh, in the male gay community specifically from seeing you know people in the 80s and 90s saw a lot of their friends and family die and therefore this idea of maybe there isn't a tomorrow so we better enjoy ourselves today and spend our money i think that that cultural trauma lasted and is has definitely carried into the 2000s where i think gay men specifically had very differing opinions on spending and the importance of it 
And it's kind of hard then to fit that into the groove of, oh, let's save lots of money and be frugal, et cetera, when you've watched maybe some of your contemporaries die from HIV. For sure. Yeah. Because whether we know it or not, younger gay men today, um, they are living their lives based on the models that they've seen from people who were older than them. And those people older than them, I've, I've had friends tell me they didn't plan for retirement because they didn't yeah. think they were going to make it to retirement. Make it. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think there's also the velvet rage at play. That's a book uh, written by a psychologist hmm. who all of his, his patients were gay men and they were sharing all of their traumas with him. And he came up with this term gay velvet rage, which is that, that, inner shame of being gay, that we will, um, gay men specifically, we will overcompensate by trying to have the perfect wardrobe, the perfect yeah. body, the outsized perfect lives. Yeah. Yeah. Outsized lives. Okay. Yeah. And so I think that that plays into it also that if we are trying to feel more complete and overcome this shame that we might feel that that might lead us to spend more money to kind of have this extravagant lifestyle. Yeah. Which, which again is, I think why people appreciate, for instance, your brand, because that's actually doing the exact opposite, right? That's saying, no, 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 this is something we can be proud of. This is who we are. And I think if we can start erasing shame, you know, shame and spending money go hand in hand, right? So if we can mm-hmm. start helping people erase shame, regardless of what that is, is, whether it's about your sexuality or about debt or about bad choices in the past, if we help people with shame, most likely we will help them not have that need to try to spend money to fill a hole or a gap that maybe we can help fill with other things. So, yeah. and, and, you know, a lot of, I think that a lot of people who aren't part of the fire community, they assume that every fire, every personal finance content creator is another version of Dave Ramsey, who's yeah. shaming people for their exactly. spending yeah. and which can be destructive. Very destructive. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do not shame people who want to get a Starbucks every day. Um, however, if that same person says, I don't have anything to put toward my 401k match and my Roth IRA, then that's when I'm, we can start talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's when it comes into play. It's about trade-offs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so for me, like I, I hope to just grow this idea of what I call penny pincher pride. And so that's the hashtag I put on a lot of my posts because we have pride in the way we look, in the clothes that we wear, in the car that we drive. But, you know, having pride for being frugal and what that's going to do for us long term, I think that is something that we should have just as much pride for when we r- march down the street in a parade. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. 
The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. <laughs> Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 